Hello and welcome to this podcast, Yes, I Have a Voice. My name is Ruth Lewis-Cost and I am a caregiver and I am blessed to be looking after my elderly parents. I started this podcast to remind ourselves that looking after those in need is a privilege. As unpaid caregivers, we need to have a voice. We need to be able to shout loud and be proud of our status. And caregiving has no age. People of all ages are caregivers. This is my way of supporting you all emotionally and practically with tools from other caregivers on how to find the joy in your situation and make amazing memories. So let's dive into this week's episode. So today I'm talking to Richard Bates. Richard is a publisher and he spent several years looking after his father. Now, during that time, he decided he would actually put together a kaleidoscope of different viewpoints of caregiving. He felt that he didn't want to have just one aspect. So Richard, you've written your book, it's now published so people can actually get their hands on it. But tell us first about your caregiving journey with your father. My parents and I were always very close, and we had a very happy family life. Growing up in America, then my my parents moved to this country when I was 15, and my sister and I would put in school over here. And my father was American, my mother was British. So we learned to be adaptable and to, to change to different situations and take life as it came and make changes as necessary. You have to do that in life. Suddenly, um, my mother died in 2000 and my father was a widower on his own. Um, he adapted to that seemingly quite well. I was aware of my father's situation, his mental state, his social life his health, his diet. I was aware very much of what he was doing all the time. And after a few years, I noticed that he was slowing down. He was, you know, he had his 80th birthday and you expect people to slow down as they age. Then my aunt in America um, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. My cousin phoned me up and she said um, her mother had been diagnosed And we should go and see her if we wanted to see her while she was still in her family home. So my dad and I went over and saw her. We drew our own conclusions about that situation. And one of the conclusions my father and I drew was that um, my aunt was not happy in residential care, although she had the best possible care. So that made a profound impact on me. I kept diaries of my visits to my aunt because I was learning about geriatric care, basically. I was drawing my own conclusions, but I was writing them down. I kept a detailed diary, took lots of photographs, uh, wrote down conversations that I had with my cousins, and it was a, a very profound experience. So my aunt died in 2006. My father was still living f- fine on his own. What happened was he slipped and fell off his bike and banged his head. This was the start of um, an acquired brain injury. We didn't realize at the time that it was that, but it it was diagnosed as a bleed on the brain, which required surgical intervention. When he came out of hospital, he needed care. And the NHS told us that we needed to put a care package in place. So we initially put in a a package of people coming in once a day to look after, to, to make sure he was all right. This lasted for 
a week and then he fell and injured himself again and was in hospital again a week later. And they said he needs care 24 hours a day. If, if he's going to go home, he needs to have a, a care package 24 hours a day around the clock. And if you can't arrange this, he'll, we'll arrange for him to go into residential care. I knew that he didn't want residential care. We put in a carer, a 24-hour carer, from Monday to Friday in the house, and she looked after him. This lasted for nine weeks, by the end of which time she was very frayed. If we were going to keep him in his own home, we needed to make it affordable. So I made a decision that I was going to let the carer go. She was absolutely the end of a tether anyway. She was so tired. And I was going to look after my father until another solution could be found. Well, after a year of doing this, I was showing signs of fatigue myself. It's a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week job, and I was quite, quite tired. My co-attorney said, you should take respite breaks because otherwise you'll burn out. You can't go on like this. So we found a very good local respite care home provider. We put my father in, a, in respite care for a week. And I found it very scary because I, I didn't know what would happen, how, how he would emerge from it. At the end of that time, I picked him up and he said, oh, I'm so glad to see you. I'm so glad you're here. And I said, is there anything wrong? No, no, it was fine. And what about the food? Did you not like the food? You know, was, the, was the bed not comfortable? Didn't you have a nice view? Did, were the people rude to you? Was anybody a hostile? No, everything was fine. I'm just so glad to see you, he said. And it's a great compliment to me. And I was very touched by that. But I also could see that I could not just abandon him on his own in a residential care home, that he would, he would get very depressed. And the manager of the care home told me that they could accommodate him if he wanted, if we wanted him to go there, they had a, a spare room for him. But she said she had seen enough of my dad that without me, he would probably turn his face to the wall and die. She was very frank with me. That's a huge emotional responsibility for you, isn't it? Or wasn't it? Yes, it was a big emotional uh, commitment uh, because I knew that my dad really uh, was uh, dependent on me for his emotional well-being. I think that dementia is a combination of factors. I'm not a doctor myself, uh, so I, I can't speak uh, medically or scientifically, but I think that one of the factors involved in dementia is anxiety and depression. And these my, my mother definitely has suffered from that, yes, absolutely. And when people are worried or scared, they, uh, their, their mental capacity is diminished. They can't think clearly because their, their cognition is clouded by fear. So this is a well-known factor, and I knew that my father's um, anxiety, I knew his personality very well. I'd known him all my life, longer than anyone else alive. And I understood um, his, his mood changes from moment to moment. And therefore, I, I knew how I could maintain uh, an even keel. So can I just move on to your book? At what point did you decide to write about this? at least get other people's stories as well as your own. 
I knew that my own story and not and it wasn't of interest to anyone and it, may, it might be one to, to my family but it wasn't widely interesting as as a commercial uh, product that I couldn't sell my story if I sat down and wrote an entire book and I could have written the entire book myself so I, I thought rather than just um, publish uh, a memoir I was going to turn it into a uh, book of um, other voices a chorus of voices of different carers who had done uh, similar work with different relationships, different diseases, different conditions, and uh, how their lives had been affected. This is a book um, not about uh, people with illnesses, but about the carers and how carers cope and what it's really like to be a carer. And uh, we put a, um, a commode on the cover because it's although the book is called Joys and Challenges, it's, it, we didn't want it just to be a sort of a sweetness and light saccharine version. We wanted it to be something that said, caring is quite hard work and you are challenged to do things that you didn't think you could do, uh, such as emptying commodes or changing diapers. And um, we wanted to include the reality of the situation and not make it just an optimistic thing, because when you take on somebody's care, as any parent knows, um, it's an open-ended commitment. You don't know how long it's going to last. You don't know what the outcome is going to be. But when you're caring for an elderly person, you know that they're not going to get younger, put it that way. And you saw you at the back of your mind, and certainly the back of my mind, was this awareness that my dad could die in my care. And ultimately, at the end of my story, he did. He, he died at home, not from dementia, but from uh, a heart attack at, at 91. He had a, a heart condition, which we hadn't previously diagnosed. And that's what, what took him. But that, there is a fear as a carer that you're going to experience the death of somebody you love. And that's a very real fear. It was uh, something that I dealt with every day. Um, I had to keep my father not only well, but happy and alive. And if he fell and he did fall several times, uh, he could break his neck or he could uh, break a, a leg or uh, end up in hospital. And there were always, always these liabilities. And so the book is a collection of stories, not just one story. It's, for example, there's, there's um, a story by a daughter who watched her parents. Um, her mother was a writer called Bridget Brophy. And uh, she was very celebrated. She was an animal rights activist, and she uh, pioneered the public lending right in library for author in libraries for authors. And she was a, a very well known figure in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, a novelist and, and a, a writer. And her her father was the director of London's National Gallery. Her name is Kate Levy, and um, her father was doing this job, running the National Gallery, while his wife developed multiple sclerosis. And he was devoted to his wife, and he looked after her at home as long as he could while holding down this very high-profile job, high-pressure job. And Kate has written about how growing up in this family situation, she saw the tensions in her parents' relationship and how they adapted, how they changed. And um, eventually, her father had to put his, his wife into a care home and how that affected her and how unhappy she was. But it was something that he had to do for the family. 
And uh, so there's not, these are not all stories about people who look after their loved ones till the very end. There are people who cannot do it, but they try as long as they can. There are no judgments in this book. There are no hard and fast rules. Every situation is different. That's what um, I, I wanted to, to publish this book, not just my own personal story, which I regarded as trivial and boring, uh, but other people, more high-profile people. So um, we have Susan Hampshire, the actress who is well-known from stage and screen, whose husband died just over a year ago. He had vascular dementia. She put her acting career on hold um, for 14 years while she looked after her husband, Eddie Kulakundis, at home during the pandemic, when she had absolutely no outside care staff, formal care staff to, to help her. And um, we have uh, Diana Melly, who was married to George Melly, the jazz singer and television personality for many years. And she describes how when he developed lung cancer and vascular dementia, uh, she looked after him at home, having been his wife all these years. And she didn't re recognize herself as his carer per se, until she realized that she was doing a lot of the nursing tasks and a lot of the, the job that, that she would otherwise have to pay somebody to do. She was doing them herself. Um, and we have um, Michael Carroll, who is a writer who looks after his husband in New York City. He is, uh, his husband is, is 82, but he's had um, major cardiovascular disease resulting in heart attacks and strokes. And, um, his husband, Edmund White, is still writing wonderful novels that have published great acclaim, but that's because Michael is looking after him and keeping his health and his domestic situation stable. And uh, so that, that's um, a, 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 an ongoing care situation. Can I just ask, with all these stories, yes. have, you, have you seen a familiar pattern? going on here with everybody's stories obviously everybody it's not everybody who has necessarily dementia but it's the, the story of the caregiver is there a theme you have seen from all these stories yes yes the, the theme that I would see is that people end up doing this by accident nobody plans to be a carer they don't even realize they're a carer for many years sometimes um, and when I was caring for my, my dad, he didn't realize that I was his carer. I was his son and he was familiar with me. He knew me and, and it was a, a comfortable, easy relationship that he re recognized. So there, there wasn't this acknowledgement that I was doing a job. But with everybody in this, in this book, the care situation evolves. It's a, a, a case of adaptation. You see somebody in your family who becomes frail or ill and you help and you do what you can and then you realize you've got to do more and you've got to do more and more and more and more and then eventually your whole life is subsumed by the care job and that it is a 24 hour a day job and you have to figure out how you as a carer can survive because it's grueling Financially, physically, emotionally, psychologically, it's just draining and you have to develop coping strategies. Otherwise, you're going, to, you're going to get ill yourself. And if you get ill, you're no good as a carer to the person you're looking after. That's so true. 
And I know that as a caregiver to a family member, majority of people, they do it, they, they, whether they, they have help doing it or whatever cir- their circumstances are. But one thing I noticed looking after my mother, even now that she's gone into a care home where she's actually probably better looked after for stimulation. And the number of people in the family and friends who will not go and see her because they say they can't bear to see her like that. Now, as the primary caregiver, I don't know whether I should, but I get a little annoyed with that because I'm dealing with it. I don't want to see my mother like that or my father diminish, but I have no choice. And these, and then people who might actually help me, even by visiting and taking some of the pressure off that way, won't do it because they're thinking of themselves and how they will feel. Is that a common theme? Not so much because the, the carers are they haven't stepped back from, from this. They, they, were, they were confronted with the situation and, and they could step back and many people do step back. And they, you know, uh, there is one carer in this book who employed a carer. She, she didn't want her mother to go into a care home. Um, she employed a, um, a series of carers because she was working and, and she, she's a publisher herself and publishes a, she's a pilot and had a very busy working life. But her office was in her mother's house because she's self-employed and she was there all the time supervising the care. She didn't want to do the bathing and the toileting and, and the, the rather more uh, unpleasant tasks. And her mother didn't allow her to do that. So she employed a Filipina um, who was living on the premises um, and was there all the time, but she was there, Georgina was there watching and helping and supervising and shopping and, and doing all the other tasks that she could. Um, so she stepped back to some extent, but what she said, I mean, this, this isn't in the book. There, the, the, the book is, is a subset of, of what the carer's experience is, but there is always a family background. There's always a family dynamic that's going on in the background. I, I know that that happens with you as well, Ruth, um, where the carer becomes the primary carer because no one else will do it. Everybody else has stepped back or they've stepped aside. And for whatever reason, job commitments, family commitments, yuck factor, whatever it is, um, other people walk away. And in some cases, when, when somebody ends up in residential care, it's usually because either they don't have any family or their family has walked away, they, they can't do it. And that's what happened with my aunt Doris in, in America, was that her family, they were all too busy. They, they are very, very busy people and they, they had other commitments. They couldn't uh, care for her. So they put her in this, uh, in a series of the, the best care homes that money could buy. And um, she was very looked at, well looked after, but she was miserable. Um, and I have uh, a publishing business. I have uh, my own home. I have my own family. I have lots of commitments. I have, I, I do a lot of voluntary work. I'm a parish counselor in the local vicinity here. I, I'm very actively engaged in, in social things. Um, and for me to look after my father, I had to put all of that 
to one side. I had to close my office in central London and lay off staff um, and I reduced my business to basically a, a, just a, a shell um, for seven years. And um, putting it back together afterwards has been difficult. But I knew that no matter how important I regarded my own life and work and friends, there was a, somebody in my life who mattered a great deal to me who without me would have been totally lost. And when you say that that's an emotional uh, commitment, it, it is, it sort of makes you more determined to do the job. And at some time, I didn't, I didn't know how I could go on. It was, it was so, so challenging. I, I, I thought, I can't go on doing this. And I, I, would, I would have a respite break and I would come back from it and I'd think, well, you know, I'd like to not do this anymore. And I would have a discussion with my dad and I'd say, um, you know, you could stay in this in this lovely place. It's by the sea, and and they they're very friendly people. You could stay here all the time. You like the food, and oh no, no, he really wanted to be with me. He he didn't want to be with strangers, no matter how nice and polite and comfortable the place was. It mattered to me to do this job, and I I didn't regard it as a job because I wasn't I wasn't being paid. It wasn't a salaried job. It wasn't, it, it wasn't a, a career choice, and I haven't become a professional carer afterwards. It didn't lead on to anything else. But it was, it was, I knew that I had an enormous responsibility, more, uh, more responsibility than I've ever had in any other thing that I've ever done in my life. Um, and it, I had to do this. I really felt that I had to put every aspect of myself into it. I had I was really there. I completely understand because uh, looking, you know, with my father, there's he would not do well in any other setup other than his own home. And so I completely understand what you're saying about being there for them. I think my original question about other people stepping away, not so much the person who um, perhaps directly might look after somebody, but then the perhaps the wider members of the family and close friends of theirs who, you know, you would perhaps hope would at least come and visit every so often to see them so that they kind of are lifted up by that. And it's felt sad to me that with my mother, you know, her cousins, for example, and her, her friends, either they're unwell themselves, which is fair enough, you know, my mum's in her 90s and uh, that is the case, but there are some people who might have come. They don't have any responsibility, of course, but they won't come because they don't want to see my mother diminished. Yeah. But that what they're not doing is thinking how that affects the, the actual caregiver or caregivers because it actually helps. It helps for the stimulation for the person who is suffering to see other people, to, to have that kind of, you know, still going on in their lives. And actually what they're doing is not being, in my mind, they're thinking about themselves more than the person who they, you know, perhaps it would, might be nice for them to, to come and see. That's Absolutely. all. So this, this, that, it's, it's not so much the level of any family who was saying, I can't do this, although I know that that actually is the case. But, you know, in the main, people want to help and do whatever they need to do as much as they physically can. Obviously, geography can also be an issue 
where people can't physically be there 24-7. Well, I, I was lucky that I, I had um, uh, technology at my disposal. I was able to keep in touch with my father's family in the United States through Facebook or, or social media and Skype and FaceTime and all the things we have these days. And I was able to uh, set up calls with my father's brother in California. He was a year older than my dad. Um, but my cousins, who had, uh, we, Fred and I had visited them, um, they came and saw us several times during the time that I was uh, looking after my dad. And uh, my uh, cousins from California came over and friends came over from France. Uh, we had a very close connection with a French family and friends came over to see me from uh, Spain and, and uh, from London. People came down to see me and they saw me looking after my dad and they stayed in the house. And uh, so I, I had a lot of, I reached out to family and friends and, and um, told them what I was doing and explained the situation. And the other thing that I did was I took my dad out whenever possible. So um, friends of mine, um, would invite us to lunch. And we went to, um, my, my dad had a connection with his, his former work colleagues um, and they had lunch once a month. And I took him to these lunches in a pub, we drove over there and kept him in touch with them. Uh, they didn't uh, shrug their shoulders and turn their backs because my dad had dementia. I told them that he had memory problems, but they were of the same age they understood and they wanted to see us. Um, but I also took him out almost every day to, um, the, the supermarket we liked shopping and we knew people at the local supermarket and they were glad to see him they were very friendly and some of the cashiers this was before COVID they would give him a hug and it was very positive I also took him to the gym until he was 90 years old and twice a week we went there's a local gym that has a part of the the um, inclusive fitness initiative program so that they were ready and willing to help somebody with a disability at that age do gentle exercise because my father had always been very fit and I knew that for vascular dementia, exercise was an, an enormous benefit and it kept his, his legs moving and, and uh, his, his uh, general cardiovascular health was better as a result of, of taking him to the gym. So taking him out into the community, taking him to see friends, taking him to uh, libraries and, and art galleries and, and uh, bookshops and, and uh, national trust houses and taking him out whenever possible. It was it was essential for my mental health, much less his. So all of those um, activities, I thought, were lifesavers for, for, for us both. That's so lovely to hear. So moving back to your book, how can people get a copy? Well, it can, you can order it from Waterstones or uh, there, uh, we have a, our own dedicated website. It can, it's available on Amazon um, in the UK, France, Germany, USA, um, and you can order it through Amazon um, using the, the, uh, the title Who Cares and uh, the ISBN. Um, perhaps you can put that in, in uh, a link. They will be uh, in the show notes, yes. But... You also asked me how the book can help people. Personally, I think that the, the book is, is designed to encourage people to, to be a carer, not to be afraid of it, not to be 
um, put off by the, the grimy aspects of it. I mean, you know, when you're cutting somebody's toenails, that can be quite sort of uh, difficult for some people, but you can, you can hire um, uh, chiropodists to do that sort of thing. Um, and um, I wanted to put in as much detail, and in my chapter, I put in a lot of detail about, about the, the difficult aspect so that people will be prepared for it and not be put off. But the other chapters are realistic as well. Um, there, there's one chapter by Julia Williams where she describes how her husband who had Lewy body dementia was having hallucinations and a change in his medication uh, triggered a um, psychotic episode and how difficult she found that. But at the end, um, the night before he died, she didn't know he was going to die, obviously, um, but he, as he was going to bed, he turned over and he looked at her and he said, I just want to tell you that I really love you. I mean, I really, really love you. So, you know, for her to be able to tell that story uh, was very cathartic to be able to say that it was a really difficult time in their marriage and uh, she had never been prepared. She knew that she was going to stand by her husband to the end, but she'd never been prepared for all the that life had thrown at her and it was still, it was worthwhile because of the emotional bond that developed between them during this process. So I think it's kind of a, an emotional roller coaster in places and people have, some of the feedback we've had is that it's, it's really helped them to deal with things like anger and resentment. Um, uh, a friend of mine in California um, bought the book and she uh, has been looking after her mother and she said she found that uh, these descriptions were really enlightening because it helped her understand her own feelings and to get over them and to um, accept them. I mean, a lot about being a carer is acceptance, acceptance of your own frailty, but also the frailty of the person you're looking after. And... Um, I think that that's what books are about, is helping you understand yourself. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I also feel that by reading other people's stories or hearing other people's stories, you realise you're actually not alone. And whatever we are all feeling, we are all feeling. It's not just me or you. And therefore, nobody else can possibly imagine what we're feeling. Any other person who has been involved in caregiving of any kind can absolutely understand. And that's, that's the truth of it. And that is what I feel definitely helps. So Richard, thank you so much. It's been absolutely, you know, a, a true eye opener. And um, we will put the information about your book in the show notes so that people can actually access it and buy themselves a copy. Um, I shall be reading it as well, but I just want to thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure, Ruth. Um, I hope that uh, this podcast helps other people. Uh, caring is a very important and valuable thing to be doing, and everybody who does it deserves uh, recognition and support and uh, as much help and advice as possible. Thank you for doing your podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, if you like this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review. It really helps. See you next time.